This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. No, this this way I can stare off at the ladybug who just like keeps fucking walking around the room. <laughs> Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. Let's go. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. My name's Jeff Fader, and I'm super pumped because my buddy Emiliano Carrillo is here. Emiliano is a fucking the bladesmith's bladesmith. There is no question that he is so highly regarded. And when I started, when I even made a point that you were going to be on this. I got messages from all the big guys. Nick Anger piped in and all these all these heavy duties piped in because they want to hear your story. How are you? Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Oh, are you kidding? We had such a good time. You and I were cruising around the Blade Show a couple of years ago. I think it was you, me, and Stelter. Yeah, yeah. And we were just laughing along the whole way. It was a little bit, it was funny. Oh, it was a total blast. Yeah, and I finally got you to uh, kind of eschew your, uh, your like, you don't touch work policy. I managed to get uh, a bunch of my, like, Japanese stuff in your hands. That is something that I've always had a problem with because I don't trust myself. So when we go to the Blade Show, you have the opportunity to touch stuff. And in my mind, anybody who puts their work in Blade Show number one, my hat's off to you. You have bigger balls than than I do. I I just... I couldn't handle the, the, you're so vulnerable when you have your work out there. Oh yeah. And then the thought of possibly dropping something or getting fingerprints on something, or I just, I just, I just, I always say I don't touch and you made me, you made me pick some up. Well, it's, it's one of those things where like, you know, there's some of the greatest makers are there. Like you see stuff from like Vince Evans and like just these guys that are peerless, you know? And so like if to get to hold one of those pieces and see what it actually feels like, you know? look at the geometry, like see the work, all that sort of stuff is great. But on the other side, like I had, um, I don't know, maybe three years ago, I had a couple of antique Japanese pieces with me that a friend of mine was trying to move. And so I said, Hey, I'm going to go to the show. I'll bring them. If we sell them great, if not, I'll just bring them home. And some like snot kid, like 10 year old, you know, his dad's on his phone, not looking. He comes over by the table. He picks up this like, you know, 400 year old Tonto and just like takes it out. He looks at it. And then he puts it back in the scabbard and then just literally from like, I don't know, a foot over the table, just like drops it, lands on the table and he just walks away. And I was like speechless because what like I, I didn't even know how to how to like tell him off, be like, hey, don't do that or whatever. But like just drop this 400 year old thing like a foot onto the table. That blew me away. Well, how much was it worth? Um, I mean, the market for that stuff moves around a whole bunch, but that was probably like a six or seven hundred dollar piece at minimum. Like it was a nice old, you know, piece of history. And this kid just like, you know, he didn't even know half as much as he needed to know to know not to do that. Does it's, that make sense? Yeah, it makes a hundred percent sense. But I'm that kid. If if on if I don't have my own neuroses, if I don't have my own anxiety neuroses, I'm that fucking kid. I'm just like completely i have no empathy i'm picking shit up i got mustard on my hands who knows what else and i'm i don't give a fuck i won't do it i i have i don't pick up out of respect yeah i'm afraid well i mean when it comes to like my stuff for instance like you know we're friends and if like if you dropped a piece of mine i'd be like whatever i can fix it that's not a big deal but like you know i can fix my work right but when it comes to fixing like an antique that's work i'd rather not have to do 
You know what I mean? So like, you know, worst case scenario, you have your like, you know, Cheeto fingers, you're like falling all over the place. This thing goes flying into the next row. Like, you know, worst things have happened. But I just didn't know what to do with this like 12 year old. I was like, you know, who, who raised you? Speaking of 12 year olds, Will Stelter, when he was coming with us too, <laughs> well, I'm going to give him, I got to give that him a couple the, shots. That's the perfect segue. <laughs> Listen, Stelter's the greatest. And I just remember when you and me and, and Will were walking around, the two of you were just touching stuff and happy and <laughs> laughing. And I felt like the, the, I was like the, I was like the adult. I was like the adult, just like <laughs> keep my hands in my pockets. I was just like, I don't want to make too many jokes. I'm afraid someone's going to drop something. And I get a little anxious when I'm there, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I totally get it. I've, I think I've been there maybe, I think my first year was 2016 that hmm. I went there. And, you know, I've, I've gone with some friends pretty much every time and just like checked things out. I've had stuff on the table, you know, here and there. But like, I think for me, it's just such a, like what we do is so niche to begin with. Right. Like before I became a bladesmith, the very idea that you could actually make stuff like this almost never really occurred to me. Yeah. And so like to be in a place that is dedicated, I mean, to every level you have like, you know, the production guys who are doing really beautiful stuff. You have like custom bladesmiths, master bladesmiths. And then you have like the, you know, absolute garbage, like just, sure. you know, mass produce, like really terrible stuff all over the place. But, that's the thing. You get everything. You get the full gambit, and I think that's amazing. You know, it is. It's interesting because I mean, Blade Show is really is the mecca of. It's where you know we all meet on online, but when we finally get together, like there's so many people that I've met online, and then once I've kind of met them in person, it's like you've kind of solidified the relationship, which I like. Yeah, absolutely. You know? But it it's interesting because you know with knife makers and bladesmiths and and things and different kinds of things that people do, you do definitely get not the right you get you don't have the niche crowd for the niche thing like it's almost it's too broad of a niche situation oh yeah you know yeah you that... can't have the spider co guys <laughs> and then the and then the uh you know Mareko momasi momasi fire arts stuff in the same world it's just oh they're yeah. just too different you know well that's the kind of funny thing about it because it's like it's like a hammer in but for people who do any knife related thing like you know you'll find you know, horn and antler and like G10 and sharpening stones and belts and grinders and like everything you could possibly think of. And like, you know, there's no accounting for taste to begin with, but like right. when you have a show that is just bringing in like, I don't even know how many, it's got to be like at least a thousand vendors. Um, oh, and yeah, like, you know, like, that, yeah. like thousands and thousands of people over the weekend, like you get everything. So, back let's back it up a little bit yeah. you've been on tv we're going to talk about we're going to talk about the shows you've been on and then the real show that you've made you battle champion that's the <laughs> one i really want to get into but growing up were you making things or where did you get this kind of you know were you doing things with your hands yeah so i mean basically um i'm i'm from mexico originally um my mom and i came to the states when i was probably about five and a half um and my you know, my stepdad, who uh, wasn't my stepdad at the time, we were going to stay for like, you know, a couple of weeks. And then they tore up the plane tickets and got married. And that was sure. kind of that. But basically, when we were coming up, he was like, hey, you know, what kind of toys does he like? What should I get him? You know, he's going to be bored as hell up here. if He doesn't have something to do. Um, and my mom just told him to get me clay. And so he got me clay and a bunch of other stuff. And pretty much since I can remember, I've been making like, you know, I was making like little sculptures of dinosaurs. I got really into like anatomy 
of dinosaurs. Like I loved, I thought I was going to be a paleontologist. So I would literally like, you know, create like, you know, maybe two foot tall, like, you know, laying down like a, a stegosaurus skeleton, you know, with all the different parts and stuff out of clay. Like we had this low coffee table um, in the house that I basically took over the moment I got there. And from years and years and years of clay, just like being kneaded on it, there was like a surface layer of like grease. You know how clay has like that <laughs> greasy sort of, it took like when I was finally like older and like ended up cleaning it up, it took me like a week to get all the crap out of there. Um, huh. But yeah, so I like, I was making stuff out of clay. Um, they found me a pottery teacher um, just outside of town. And I used to go and like spend a bunch of time working what, there with where her. Where were you living? This was in Hopewell, New Jersey. Um, okay. So just outside of Princeton, kind of, uh, you know, central yeah. Jersey. Um, and yeah, so I was doing a bunch of pottery with her. And um, that was kind of it for like when I was a kid. But when I got a little older, like through high school and stuff, I got into the habit of just like doing all my homework at school and like getting it out of the way. And then when I got home, I could do whatever the hell I wanted. So I started like making chain mail. I taught myself how to make, uh, you know, chain mail from like, I had a, a pen from the bank. It was like a PNC bank down the road. And I took these 50 foot spools of galvanized wire that my mom was like getting for me. And I would wind them around the, the, the pen to make all the rings and then use a little, you know, snipper, cut all my rings. And then I spent who knows how much time knitting together like a chainmail shirt and I would make like jewelry and all sorts of other stuff. Huh. It was like, you know, now looking back, it's maddening. I'm like, how the hell did I put like, you know, 20, 30,000 rings together? Like, that's insane. I wouldn't do that now. Um, but at the time it was like, you know, that's what I wanted to do. I didn't really care about school. Um, you know, my parents wanted me to do like track or like, you know, robotics club or like literally any after school activity. And I didn't care for any of it. I wanted to just make my own stuff. Huh. But it's interesting because both, the, you know, when you started saying that you were making like anat anatomy and then the skeletons, you know, when I look at your work now, you know, it's so historically based. I mean, if you don't mind me saying so. Yeah, of you know, The work is very much along the lines of, you know, I know you make Viking style swords and sacks and katanas and everything you do has this real deep history. And I'm fascinated by the fact that you are. You were even at a young age. You really were interested in the intricacies of the history of these animals, to yeah. knowing what the ins and outs are. Yeah, and I think a lot of the history itself comes from, like, I was super, super into, um, like, Lord of the Rings growing mm -hmm. up. Like that, I think that was the first like group of books I read on my own. I like mm -hmm. went to the local library, you know, like two blocks down the road, and like picked up The Hobbit and then the other books. And so that was like my introduction to like reading on my own. And the like kind of history that he made up and like imbued all of his, you know, his books with that sort of stuff got me really interested in like knights and like, you know, like armor and chivalry and all that sort of stuff. Like, you know, I, I love that sort of stuff. And the history was such a big part of it that when I finally got around to like, you know, later on down the road doing this work, like I couldn't find a way to divorce the two. Like the work yeah. and the history are one and the same. You know, one doesn't really exist without the other. Huh. Or at least that's how I was looking at it. Because you're, because that makes me think that you're taking the, your ego out of the work itself. I, I, I mean, it's. I think that's a tough thing to do, no matter what. But it is, it is really nice to work within a historical parameter, because 
Whereas if I wanted to design something like completely devoid of history, like the stuff that Peter Johnson did recently, like those those are you know masterworks to begin with. But is it the swords make the sword maker? Yes, yeah. He uh, he did a, an exhibition of of I think it was twelve pieces that are swords that kind of exist, uh, swords and daggers that exist out of time and oh. out of like they're they're totally totally incredible. But basically the the thing that I find really nice about the confines of history is that I can study and learn and kind of understand what things were being made back then, and I can do my own take on them. And so the work that I do is as authentic as I can make it without just, you know, being like a carbon copy, because, you know, there's some, there's some fun in that as far as like building skill, right. but making your own, your own interpretation is a lot of fun for me. So I... Yeah, okay, sorry. No, no, I, I just I just think that that's I think that's where I'm most comfortable right now because, you know, I've got a ton of reference for, you know, historicals, you know, saxes or swords or whatever, things that were found in the, you know, in Norway or Sweden or wherever. And that stuff is, you know, for me, at least at this point, is easy. I'm like, okay, I need to make a pattern welded blade like this, and then I'll put a handle like this, and the sheath will be simple because I already know the style. So it's like very comfortable in a way. Um because I have a basis of this history to kind of back up the work I'm doing. Wow. That's, that's very interesting because I mean, obviously, I mean, that was something, you know, knowing you and knowing your work that history and uh, is such a huge part of, is such a huge part of it. So I also like back to, back to when you were talking about the, um, the chain mail, I, I don't think that that, and when you say it would be crazy to do it now, I don't think it is crazy to do it now. I think that, that that kind of labor that labor intensive stuff is so important to get to that concept of you know seeing a project through and oh, i yeah. don't see anything i don't see anything like you know it sounds like madness i mean to yeah, me it does. but at the same time it's just like the idea that you can that you can take something and then have an idea and then execute it and understand it's going to take some time things isn't going to be overnight but then you've kind of reached that goal at the end. I would imagine that stuff like that, especially when you're in high school, you got all your homework done, and now you're making chainmail, making chainmail shirt. That should probably take you, you know, like a couple of months, right? Oh yeah, and I mean, I didn't just make one; I did a second one. Um, but by that time, I got smart. I actually bought the rings instead of made them, so it was at least a little easier. Wow. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the whole doing homework at school thing was like the life hack that no one ever told me that I wish everyone had told me because like, you know, I was not a, I was not a school kind of kid. Like it, right. it just wasn't my deal. I didn't enjoy it. I'm not a good test taker. Like, you know, I just, it's not my thing, but the, uh, I took a, an intro to engineering class. Um, I think my sophomore year and there was like a machine shop at the school. They had like really nice lathe, you know, a couple band saws, like a mill, you know, just kind of, like there wasn't a shop class anymore. It had been phased out years ago, but all this stuff was still there. And so for this intro to engineering class, we went in there and made like, you know, at uh, automatas, you know, like the little, like I, I did a little drum player, you know, I built like this cam with a bunch of, um, or sorry, this shaft with a bunch of cams on it that like would move the, the feet and the arms of this little like puppet basically to make okay. it play drums. And like, that was my real like intro to being in like a shop of any sort. And like, after that, I, a friend of my parents, uh, he was a car mechanic, but he had like, you know, an anvil lathe, like, you no, know, all the toys pretty much. Right. 
and he invited me to like start coming to his shop. So like, you know, maybe twice a week after school, I would just like drive straight over to his shop and like he taught me how to use the lathe. You know, he like just kind of helped me become a little more comfortable and fluent with like making stuff with my hands and like just coming up with an idea and seeing it through. That's, you know, there's something to be said about like the final result. And I think that a lot of time I've been talking to a pile of, you know, makers now and they all, they all have a very similar, they have this similar, similar feeling towards being able to kind of make something and kind of, you know, establish something and think about things. And, and then it's always comes from learning something or seeing something that they've done in the past. So, so that, so you spent all this time in the car and were you working on cars or were you just, no, no. I mean, I, I think I first went into his place. It might've been during the summer, like to help him clean like the storeroom. You know what I mean? Like he was just like, he had years and years worth of like car parts and things. So I helped like organize everything. And like, at that point I had gotten into like movie props. Like ever since I was a little kid, I was really into star Wars. Like, you know, I watched those, you know, movies on VHS, like all the time as a kid. Um, and I really wanted to make one. Um, and so make one, what make a lightsaber. Oh, okay. I thought that would be the coolest project. Um, and so like, I mean, I was like seven, maybe I started doing research on the computer, like our ancient MacBook G3 or um, like Mac G3, like one of the old Wait a plastic second. towers. Hold the phone. Wait a second. So were you going to the, to the garage at seven? No, no, no. Sorry. This is like the leading up to okay. the, to working okay. in the okay. garage. Like all I'm thinking is, you know, Oh no, no, no. That, <laughs> that would have been nuts. <laughs> I think, you know, some weirdness, weirdness going on in that garage. No, I, so basically um, I did like the research on the computer and was right. like, Hey guys, like, you know, I can buy all the stuff I need to make myself one of these for like 150 bucks. And my parents At were eight. Yeah. And they were like, we're not going to give you 150 bucks. Are you fucking crazy? Yeah. And I was like, all right, cool. That's fair. That's definitely fair. <laughs> but I always wanted to do it. And like, you know, my mom helped me get like a sink tube, like an inch and a half, like chromed sink tube. Yeah. And like, you know, cut it out because I d- couldn't use a saw yet. And I like used windshield wipers to make grips and like use sheet metal and like epoxy putty to make like all the details on it. And it was Damn. super, it was super cool, but it was also really sharp. You know, I cut everything with like a pair of like gardening snips and it was yeah. all like sharp metal. And I think they had to get rid of it because all my friends really liked it. And that was a surefire way for all of us to end up with bloody fingers. Yeah. Um, but that love of like movie props, especially ones that like made light, basically followed all the way through high school. So by the time I was working in, in the in the garage and like, you know, using the lathe and stuff, I was making parts for lightsabers. I was making parts for uh, like arc reactors, like the thing that Tony Stark has in his chest. Sure, sure. I made like replicas of those like based on you know, one-to-one reference from the movies and like, you know, just got really deep into, and I I think that probably has to do with the stuff I do now. Like I wanted to do all the research. So I knew exactly what I was doing because I didn't want some, you know, some dick on the internet being like, Oh, well you got this wrong. You know, (laughs) you were, dude, you're spending all this time and energy (laughs) and historical reference. You were just about some dick on the internet. That is, that is why this, we have gotten to point. We are, we are are doomed. We have a doomed society. You're coming in it from such a sincere place. And then you do all this time and energy and research. And you're just worried about some dude saying you suck, dude. It's terrible. Well, I mean, it's going to happen regardless. You know, a lot of, a lot of people, you know, hate on the internet because it's free, but, um, (laughs) 
why it makes me so sad that you were like you're you're like worried that like you, you your whole that your whole joy was based on on uh, the fear of your it was hampered your your yeah. your joy was being trampled on by the by the expectation of these you know i don't like to say trolls honestly i think a lot of people on the internet i just think they want to be heard i'm not necessarily sure they're looking to be assholes i look deep where it's all coming from and i think that a lot of times people just want to be heard yeah and they're not necessarily trying to be assholes i think that they're just they have a hard time figuring out how to interact in a positive way and the fact is is a lot of times when you interact with someone in a positive way they might not respond well so maybe you'll fuck with them and then then they'll respond and i think the tough thing too is like where the person's coming from and like the kind of education they have in whatever the topic is that's a total unknown you know what i mean like i could have a guy on the internet telling me hey you know you screwed up this the pattern should actually look like this and he could be like you know an archaeologist with like you know, a doctorate and like all this other stuff, like he could be the real deal and I could just have no idea. Or conversely, like, you know, I could know what I'm talking about and some guy is just like, well, you know, and it's just totally wrong. So I, I don't know. I, I think I think it definitely has a lot to do with like where they're coming from. Because you're right, a lot of people just want to be heard, but other people definitely just want to start, you know, a fire. Yeah, some I think, sort. but that fire comes from a place. It doesn't come from a place of just, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of jealousy and stuff like that, but there's also just like, some people just don't know how to interact with other people. And when they see yeah. the screen, they don't think that they're real. And it's like, you're not, I'm not, I'm making a joke at someone that I don't even think exists. And, yeah. you know, they couldn't possibly be hurt because I don't, I don't see them. I haven't met them. I haven't shook their hands. Yeah. They don't, I don't know them. So. Well, yeah, it's like the, it's the perceived complete anonymity, you know, it's like, it's like, what, how could I be responsible or held accountable for like some shit I see on the internet, you know, to like, you know, some eight year old or 12 year old or whatever, who's like trying to make something, whether it's like their first railroad spike knife, or whether they just made like a pot, you know, they, they just made like a, a really nice, you know, ceramic pot or whatever, you know, and some guy on the internet is going to be like, oh, well you know, clearly you're an amateur. And it's like, of course he is. He's 12, you know? I don't know why people even feel the need. I don't even feel, understand why people feel the need to say anything. Yeah. I mean, in, except for encouraging. I, I would think that anytime I've done anything on the internet, I've always tried to be encouraging because ultimately it's like, that's the only way it works. I mean, being as shitty isn't, doesn't really pay. I, yeah. I just, I just, all right. So, so, so you, you were doing this stuff with research because you were preparing yourself, <laughs> you were bolstering yourself for the potential of, uh, humiliation on the internet. Yeah. And when did you make your first knife? So that was uh first year of college. Um, I basically, uh, my school had this thing called, um, called jam term, which they don't do anymore, which was literally like, you know, you could come back to school, like basically a full month early and take a class. So they had like some really weird stuff. This was Hampshire College up in Massachusetts. Sure. And, um, you know, very hippie school, um, very progressive. Um, and one of the things that they had, which is what drew me there, is they had a shop. And this is like a full metalworking shop. Uh, they had like three mills, a couple lathes, like, you know, an entire forging area, a single strike pneumatic hammer, a bunch of welders. I mean you know, cold saw, like bench shears, like, uh, I mean, basically anything you could want. Right. And 
unlike a lot of other schools, like I looked into engineering schools like Lehigh and some of the others, and like day one, you had to say, okay, I'm going to be an engineer. It's going to take me six years to get through this program, which hmm. is insane. And there's no leeway. You know, if I, I fuck up a test, if I miss a day, like that's more or less it. And I was like, you know, fuck, I don't even know if I want to go to school. Like this is, you know, like I told you before, I wasn't a school kid. Like it took me, my parents and I kind of wrestled and, you know, discussed it a long time, whether I even wanted to go to college. And I found out about this place through a friend of my dad's and I didn't have to have a major. I could kind of just do whatever I wanted as long as I was like proving and kind of showing that I was making advancements in learning. So, so when you went there, what did you, what were you, did you have any, a kind of an inkling of where you wanted to go or? Um, I, I honestly thought that I would probably end up in some sort of like machining or engineering mm-hmm. kind of through okay. a less traditional sure. like, route than like doing the six year follow your engineering. like follow yeah. your i say like because i'm like i'm not sure you wanted to do it anyway <laughs> exactly get, get in the metal shop and yeah and and that was the thing like i went up there for like a you know a visit with my parents and um the first day i walked into the shop i met this guy don he was like an old school machinist he had worked for um oh man i think it was ge as like an as like an engineer, he had like worked as an armorer. He was like a blacksmith. He knew everything. You know what I mean? Like he was yeah. the kind of guy that you would be like, "Hey, you know, I'm trying to do this like super super like niche thing. Do you have any ideas?" And he'd be like, "Oh yeah, I read a book about that. You need to do this, this, and the other thing." And so Don was like, he was like a really great, you know, mentor, especially when I first started with this stuff because, like, well, well, getting back to like going to the to the shop the first time, like there was like a pile of swords in the corner in his office, you know, he was like working on like hunting swords. He was really into like, you know, hunting swords. Yeah. He was like really into 1700 stuff. Like he used to make um, like black powder pistols and like all sorts of other cool stuff. Um, And yeah, so he was just like, you know, he was a civil war uh, reenactor also. Like he was just super into history also. And he and I hit it off immediately. You got lucky. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, if it hadn't been for, getting up to Hampshire and having someone like him who like knew enough about this stuff to keep pushing me in the right direction. Like Don wasn't the guy who I would go to and say, Hey, I'm stuck on this project. Can you do the next, you know, four hours worth of work for me? He would basically like push me in a direction and let me go. And whether I fucked up or got it first try, he was allowing me to make those choices, you know? P.S. Yeah. What fucking college lets the teacher at a machine shop have like guns and swords in their office? I mean, that, that shit is that is that shit. That, talk about a unicorn. I used to have fake uh, samurai swords in yeah. my apartment in my school and security came and, and, oh, dude, and, and the, took them. The same exact thing happened to me. I literally had like a, an old Tai Chi sword, which is, you know, blunt as hell. First off, that, that uh, my mom uh, had because she liked the Tai Chi for a long time. And the shape had uh, had kind of cracked in half, so I was going to resolder it for her. And in the meantime, I just had it in my room. And they did like a check of you know, like to see who had their bongs out and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And they took it. It took me like half a year to get it back. And all the all the while, while I'm dealing with this and like talking to like the chief of campus police and all this stuff, like I'm you know, five hundred feet away across you know 
uh, in the shop, like making actual swords and yeah. knives, and they have no idea. It's like yeah. it made no sense. It that's exactly that's exactly what happened. I had a I had a fake samurai sword, and I had to. I got out one day, came home, and it was gone. There was a note on my desk saying we confiscated the sword. <laughs> and I was like, so embarrassing. It wasn't anything other than like, I mean, I was when I was in metal, I was in uh, sculpture major. I, I, we were fooling around with metal stuff, and I was like, I was going to try to make something similar. And then I had to say to him, I had to get my, I was so embarrassing. I had to get my art teacher to write a note. And mm. my, I was like, can you just write me a note for the security? Because they took my fucking bullshit. <laughs> I just don't want it gone. I mean, it was just like, it was given to me as a gift. It was a bull, it was a Chinatown sword, you know? Yeah. And, and I just remember just the embarrassment of having to go to my sculpture teacher and say, could you write me a note saying that this is for, for art? Yeah. You know, this is like reference for art. And he's just like, that's pretty thin, Jeff. I'm like, just, I'm just, don't make me do it. I mean, I was like begging the teacher. I was like, yeah. I don't want this. This is like, I don't have a lot of stuff I brought home, brought from home. And this is kind of something I kind of liked. Yeah. You know, but I, it's fun. I've never in my life heard of that. You, I feel like that you hit the fucking, you got so, I mean, fortunate. I don't, I don't like to say lucky, but you found someone in the school who was doing what you wanted to do and had such a wealth of knowledge. Were there other yeah. students who were doing that too? Or Well, so yeah, there, there were two other students there who were like, you know, seriously doing bladesmithing. Um, there was like a, you know, like a club, a blacksmithing club, basically. Um, and they would meet like once a week on, I think, Wednesday night from like eight to 10 or something, or like six to eight. I can't remember which. Um, and basically like you would have some students who were, you know, a year older or two years older. It, it reminds me of that thing of, like, you know, a 12-year-old looking after, like, you know, babysitting for, like, right. an eight-year-old. It's like a slightly older child caring yeah. for a slightly younger child. That's basically what it was. It was, like, you know, me and, like, all the other first years, like, kind of getting tips and stuff from people who had been doing it just a tiny bit longer. But I spent basically my entire first semester, like, going in and, like, making hooks and I eventually, uh, Don kind of like pushed me in the right direction to learn how to forge weld. So I was making like forge welded chain links and like, you know, just hooks and like all this, you know, leaves and all the kind of like beginner blacksmith projects. Um, and I remember very clearly at the time, like I tried making a bottle opener and it went, it went so wrong. I mean, Why? I just, I don't know. I, I think it was in the punching of the, you know, the little lip mm. to kind of like pull the top. I, I just couldn't do it. I don't know. I, I just wasn't fluent enough with my hands in that way. Cause like, you know, before getting there, I'd never swung a hammer at like a piece of metal before, you know, like I'd made, you know, wooden swords and things like that all throughout childhood. But the idea of actually being able to make something like that in real life was just like, you know, it wasn't even a pipe dream. It was like not even a thing you can do on this planet. So were you guys also, were you heat treating and making swords or, I mean, you got Don, is Don guiding you in that direction or? Well, so yeah, uh, basically after my first, um, after my first semester, I came back for jam term, right? For the early like extra right. month. And I hadn't made a knife or knife shaped object yet, but basically what I decided was, okay, I've been doing a lot of reading. I joined the Bladesmith Forum online, which was Don Fogg's old forum, you know, it used to be hosted on his website, and now it's its own kind of separate thing. But it is like, I think probably the only place on the internet that I've been where I've read through hundreds of threads on that place, and mm. people aren't shitting on each other. They're not like, 
throwing each other under the bus. They're not giving each other bad info. No one's like butthurt about anything. It's literally just a bunch of makers from all over the world who are like helping each other. And what like, year was this? This was um, this was 2014. So I started I started bladesmithing in January of 2014, and I started by I mean, like I told you, I'd done a ton of reading, right? So I was like, of course I could make a forge welded, you know, whatever. So I took a rasp and some iron, and I forge welded the rasp up to like 300 layers, and used like a ball peen hammer, uh, like not one of the ones that has a round ball, but like one of the slightly f- like flat ones. It's kind yeah. of like a regular cross peen, but a little smaller. I basically put that under the uh, power hammer. It was a single strike K75, so you could, you know, do some pretty gentle stuff with it. I forged these kind of indentations into the edge material and forged the iron into it and made like a really like primitive wolf tooth pattern because I was like reading about it and finding historical reference to those. And I was like, that's cool as hell. I want to do that. So I did like a sax, you know, which was what I got interested in first. And then I did another one. And then I figured why not up the ante and I made a sword. And, you know, I, I didn't, make it easy for myself, which I kind of wish I had sometimes. Um, the sword was a five-bar pattern-welded Viking sword. So Jesus. it was like a 28-inch blade, three twisted bars in the center, two edges wrapped around. Um, and, you know, this is like, this was all pretty much me in a bubble. Um, but I went to my first hammer in down in um, Baltimore, the Fire and Brimstone hammer in, and met like a ton of incredible makers and people who like gave me great advice and like helped me out helped me with the grinding t- you know helped me a little bit with the heat treating of the blade and stuff like that like you know people who you know I'd never met before but everyone welcomed me with open arms and could tell that I was serious and that I gave a shit and so they helped me along which was huge you know i think a lot of it comes from your care of history your care of history and your care of being doing it the right way in regards to the historical historical accuracy that you're so willing to willing or willing to take people's help. I don't think, I think it's hard for people to, to, to do that at some point, but yeah. I think that I feel like your, your authenticity demands that you get as much information as possible. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I think, I think it probably wasn't easy to take, you know, direction or criticism at first. But what I realized, and you know, I mean, I've I've traveled all over the place now, you know, both in the states and elsewhere, like seeing people and meeting them and you know, forging with them, learning from them. Like, you know, the whole "no man is an island" thing is super, super cheesy, but it's also so true. Like, the stuff that I've been able to do, there's not a single way on this planet that I would have been able to do all of this by myself without the internet without the friends that i made along the way like the iron smelting the pattern welding like all the stuff was through a lot of time learning and listening and talking with people and like you know the, the other side of that is i've started teaching classes and like giving demos and things like that and at greg's hammering where you and i were like i was blown away when i was doing my demo i saw somebody like sitting down and he was taking notes. And I was like, I'd never thought of myself as somebody who could have enough to say about a topic, like expertise or knowledge or whatever you want to call it. 
to the point where somebody would be like writing down the tips and tricks or whatever hmm. to like refer back to later. And that was like, that's something I remember really clearly as being like a very validating moment in like, okay, maybe I do know what I'm talking about to an extent. Huh. Well, it is, you know, it is true. I, I used to make a lot of jokes because I was in charge of all the notes for my, sh uh, uh, when I was at the center for mental arts, Yeah, we, I was in charge of doing all the notes because no one else was doing the notes. So I was doing all these, you know, drawn notes and i i ended up doing that's my, my a lot of my watercolor things comes from the fact that nobody else takes notes not a lot of people do take notes yeah i it's I, I don't know i i have like i actually just pulled them out today to take a look at them i have like you know those little moleskin notebooks sure the like you know really thin little ones they're like you know i i have like i think six or seven of them here and i've like leafed through them and they're just full of like designs and ideas and like the first one has like a little pictorial that, that I drew about like how to do a like a twist pattern welded billet, like trying to sort out the detail. Cause like, you know, I don't have, you know, I can't fit 48 hours into a single day. So I wanted to get as much out of every second I had in the shop. Like once I was at Hampshire and once I tried bladesmithing, I was like, okay, this is it. This is what I want to do. I'm going to spend as much time. Not, you know, obviously not perfecting or mastering, but I want to spend as much time becoming as fluent in this language as I possibly can. And what that turned into is I would spend, you know, anywhere from like six to 14 hours in the shop almost every day because I had unfettered access to it pretty much. Hmm. And, you know, why would I waste time when I could be getting as good as I possibly could at this thing? And so, like, I would read and I would like daydream and like do these forging problems in my head. So, like, the wolf tooth pattern was one that I loved, and I basically looked at as many originals as I could and reverse engineered the shape of the tool, figured out, because of the forging deformation, that you could see, like, what order things were done in, tried to figure out, like, what size, you know, I did everything, like, forged out two size before forge welding, like, all this other stuff. So all this was happening in my head while I was sitting in a lecture or whatever. And by the time I actually got to the shop, I would basically do exactly what I tried to do in my head. And either it would work really, really well and I'd get it the first try, or I would be so far off that it wouldn't. But that was the thing. Like I I wanted every like like technique or thing that I was interested in, I needed to know how to do it hmm. from like the ground up. Let's head back just a little bit. You you mentioned something that that I'm interested in only because I don't know enough about them. I sure. know that you're known for making sacks. Yeah. The sacks. S-E-A-X. Yes. What is a sax? And what's the historical reference? What What's going on? What What the fuck is this? For fuck? I, I, I don't <laughs> know what it's, what it's all about. Yeah. So basically, the, the sax, the, first off, the word itself literally just means knife. In, I think, Danish, or maybe even Swedish, the word sax, usually S-A-X, now means scissors. And back then, apparently, it was fairly, you know, it could mean either one, too. But basically, it was a type of knife that was used, like, kind of before, throughout, and kind of right after the tail end of the Viking Age. Hmm. In both, like, England and in Scandinavia. So these knives were you know, anywhere from the size of like an eating knife, you know, like a, you know, three inch blade, you know, all made out of iron, you know, with a little horn handle, all the way up to like, basically what's called a Lang Sax, 
you know, long sacks, which is like can be a sword size like machete basically. So these things like it's it's kind of a a generic term for a Viking age knight, the way I see it. Um, but you know, you find them everywhere. Like there's specific kinds of saxes that were in like Viking women's graves that like would hang off of a chain off of these brooches that would be on the shoulders, like holding the cloak on. There were like specific types that were for war. You have like, you know, all these really beautiful pattern welded ones. Like they range the gambit from like the thing that like the guy down the road would have to the thing that was hanging on the king's belt, you know? They're just like I think one of the things I love about them is that while you can kind of nail them down a little bit, they are like they they can be almost anything. Hmm. Cause it seems to me like that there's a lot of there's a specific shape yeah. and specific characteristics that make it a sax. Like when I, I mean, I, I'm talking, you're talking to someone who doesn't really oh, yeah. know much about it. They have like a very, they, 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 I almost see the shape of the blade almost, almost jagged. Like there, yeah. there's like a jagged quality to it. And generally there's not usually like a knuckle guard or some kind of hilt, right? Yeah. So basically the, there's two types, right? There's the English saxes and there are the Scandinavian ones. The English ones are the kind of classic one that I think everyone knows about. They're like the, you know, they have a clip on them. Um, most of the ones you see are like, you know, an inch and a half bar of 1095 or worse that is cut at a 45 degree angle on the end and then has a horn handle put on it, like a stag handle or something. That's about as far away from what they were as you can get. Like these things were very, very subtle in their design. They have these really, really subtle tapers. Um, the finishes were like impeccable, you know, uh, to my knowledge, none of the ones I've seen had a forged finish on them. They were all polished. Um, and then the Scandinavian ones are kind of like a spear point, like, like the, the tip is probably just under the center line towards the edge. And they have these really graceful curves to them. They're, they, the sax has basically suffered the same exact fate that the Tonto did. You know what I mean? Like when you get like a tanto tipped, um, you know, folding knife, you know, from like Walmart or something like, right. It's a complete, you know, the, the idea, the very basic, like, Oh, it has a tip that has a little bit of an angle and then it comes back. Like that's the same. And that's where the similarities end. That's basically what, um, what saxes have happened, you know, what's happened to them. Same as the tanto. And I think that's part of why I love doing what I do because like, you know, you know, frankly, the stuff I do is pretty out there. You know, it's pretty <laughs> really it's pretty, it's pretty niche, or at least I feel like it is. And so Why I do feel, you say that? Well, I don't know, like with the with like making my own steel and like the the historical saxes and stuff like that, like, you know, I've had people say, Well, why does a historical sax like that cost so much when I can get something comparable for way less? And I'm like, Well, you know, show me what is comparable. Those people and, those people are worthless. Oh, well, I yeah, mean, as I mean, humans, those I, people I, are worthless as humans. Th 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 these are, for some reason, these types of people pop in and out of 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 stories in my yeah. life, and it's just like these are not your people. Oh no, they're they're definitely not. But also, like that that person is somebody who could know and could understand, but just doesn't have access to the to the specific knowledge or education to bring them there. And maybe they don't give a shit. Maybe they're just you know trolling or trying to get you know some frustration out. That's a possibility. But I feel like one of the things I try to do when I post stuff or or whatever is I try to 
explain a little bit about the process or what I'm doing because I feel like that helps people connect to the work behind it. Because you can see an incredible piece by a mastersmith, right? Like one of like, you know, you know, like a, I, I don't know, just, just think of, you know, like a crazy, crazy, beautiful piece. And you look at it and you're like, oh, cool. And that's it. But if you knew all of the hours and all of the fine tuning and all of like the, you know, single strokes of thousand grid sandpaper, and then like, oh, nope, I have to go back to 320. Like, you know, all the work that goes into it, the lay person will never know that. And I you feel like a little bit of education goes a long way. This is a fascinating point because when I was younger and I was, I was an art student, my dad was a painter. My dad was a very good painter. Yeah. And when we would talk about work, he would say, ultimately, it doesn't matter how much time you put into something. Yeah. It's the, always the final outcome. No one's going to say, oh, wow, it took them a long time. Yeah. That makes it more important. It's always, you could do something beautiful in 30 minutes, or you could do something beautiful in, in 45 minutes or fucking months. Yeah. It does, you, you, sometimes the viewer, as, at least in art, needs to separate out the craft and understand the whole, the final outcome. I, I just, oh, yeah. it's interesting to me. It's interesting to me because I get, I get into these, I get into these, you know, vortexes with, with people in regards to, is this art or is this craft? Oh, or dude, why yeah. do we delineate the two? And there is, there is a hundred percent. I totally agree with you. I look at stuff like Mike Quisenberry. Mike Quisenberry is outstanding. I mean, he, he, number one, one of the nicest guy, guys, guys, oh, yeah. podcast DMS me, give me, he gives me his number. He's give me a call. We start talking. Unbelievable guy. Yeah. His work is like, I can't even get to the point where I can have any understanding how long it takes him to make his work. No understanding. I got no time. I can't, I can't even think about, I can't think about the process. Like, it's like wh what I'm doing is I'm putting, um, if I cut myself and I put um, paper towels and, and electric tape over my cut, Yeah. he's doing brain surgery. <laughs> you know, he's doing something, he's doing something completely different than what I'm doing, you know? So the Blade Show that you and I were walking around um, that same night, I think, um, you know, me, me and a bunch of people were over in the pit. And uh, at some point that day, Mike had walked by and he'd been like, hey, you know, he saw the Japanese pieces and he was really interested. And he said, hey, I'd love to talk to you about this stuff later. If we get a chance. And I was like, yeah, of course. But of course, like, Mike Cousinberry is like one of the best makers around, period. In the world. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, not, certainly not just in the U.S., like, anywhere. And, like, you know, him being interested, I was like, okay, cool, that's that's awesome. You know, I doubt anything will come of it, just because, like, you know, I don't want to, you know, take someone's time, you know, if, if they're, like, a billion times better than I am. You know, like, what, what do I have to, to, to teach or show or whatever? But later that night, we were in the pit and just sitting around having a bunch of gin and tonics, and I see Mike walking, and he's with... Uh, a friend of his and his wife and he like you know sees me and gives me a wave and they come over and he tells his wife and his friend like hey don't wait up for me I have I have to talk to, to you know my friend here and he like sat down and we had like a two hour conversation that was just like he was asking about the Oroshigane about the process like how I was doing things like it was just I mean you know you already said he's the nicest guy in the world but just like the humility and the the kind of like gentleness and like acute sharpness of like intelligence. It was just, I don't know, you know, I, I don't want to gush too much about Mike cause he'll get an inflated head, but 
Don't worry um, about Mike. He's okay. <laughs> Mike's, Mike's okay. But that was the thing. Like, you know, that's the thing I love about this this community that we're a part of. Like, I've met in, you know, almost the seven years I've been doing this, I've met, like, not enough people to fill up one hand who were complete sticks in the mud. You know, right. almost everyone I've met is, like, a really genuine, kind person who, like, gives a shit, you know? It and is, you know, it's amazing. It's pretty am- it- it is amazing. It is amazing. I I I must say that uh, I've had nothing but great experiences with a lot of master bladesmiths that I've met, and you know Mike and Lynn Ray has been incredible, such a oh, yeah. good dude, and 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 um, Aaron Wilburn and and uh, Josh Smith, Josh Smith. I mean, these are just you know they're all good dudes and they want to be helpful. Yeah. So let's get back to you for a second. For sure. So number one, one question I had is. How great is Hampton College if you're a knife maker? Let's go oh, to Ham- everybody go to Hampton College and go see Don. That's number one. Well, he he retired, which you know, which is a shame. Oh. But there's uh, there's still some good stuff happening there. Basically, like when I was there, I kind of took over the the blacksmithing club after my first year, and like you know, got money from the school to buy like a 36 inch Paragon, um, and like you know, just wow. was heat treating swords out of it. Like I was making. A lot of Viking swords, like I basically treated it as like my part full time job. Wow! <laughs> while I while I was there, I was making like commissions for people, but I never thought I was going to sell anything. Like the first time I sold anything was a fillet knife that I made for a friend who was going on a fishing boat that summer, and it was literally like eleven layers of like fifteen and twenty and ten ninety five, an off cut from the sword I made. The handle was atrocious, but he said that it would cut better than any other knife that he had. And so I was like, oh, that was cool. You know, I charged him like 50 bucks for it. And after that, people started coming to me and asking for me to make them stuff. And most of it was historical work. Like the best advice I got from a fellow blade maker, George Ezel, who's a really talented maker out of, I think he's in Alabama. Um, Or maybe Georgia. I can't remember. But at at any rate, George told me that the most important thing he had learned was to make what you want to be known for making. Because if hmm. you go and make like, you know, that ninja sword from that movie or, you know, the Conan sword or whatever it is, right? If you go and make something that you don't want to make, people are going to see that associated with you. And then that's what they're going to be coming to you for forever. Hmm. And I point. thought that was really like, that was super interesting. I was like, well, shit, of course that makes loads of sense. So, you graduated college? Yeah, yeah, I I did um I basically studied um like Scandinavian like lit and languages and blacksmithing. That was kind of what I did. That was your major? More or less. Uh Hampshire is a really oh. weird place cuz they they kind of let you build your own major. Uh there's like three divisions. Your first one is like a super general like your first year just kind of do whatever you want. Your second two years, you're supposed to kind of be moving in a direction, whatever that is. Right. And then your third year, you basically spend your entire year doing a thesis, like a finished project. But the cool thing is it's not grad school. Like, you're still an undergrad. This is basically like you're going to make, like, you know, big boy work at this point. Right. You know, you have to, like, really come up with something. That's, that's super cool. And you were able to kind of take your love of, 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 of building and your love of history and you kind of pulled it all together. Oh yeah, you built I, yourself. You built yourself your own perfect. You built yourself the Emiliano Major. Basically, yeah, I I made uh, Beowulf's sword 
for my div three for my final project. Um, What's Beowulf's sword? So, do you know the poem Beowulf? By any chance? No. So I, I know I know that it's I I don't know I don't know enough about Beowulf. I know it's a it, character from something, but I'm not 100 percent sure what. English teachers love this. Like my first time reading Beowulf was in high school, um, and basically it's a story about a like of you know pre-Viking age like warrior who shows up at like this long haul and basically starts killing monsters who are like terrorizing the people there. And he's like the baddest guy around, you know? Yeah. They like talk about like, yeah, you know, I wrestled snakes while I was right. swimming across the ocean. You know, they I like, you know, have done this and I've done that. It's basically like, you know Stud hero. Yeah. And the but the cool thing about this is that um the original old English is still like gettable. Like you can you can get a copy of the book, um, the Seamus Haney translation that has the English on one side and the old English on the other. And through reading that book, I realized, like, oh, the sword that they're talking about that is his sword is actually a migration-era sword. It's, like, a very classic type that is found in, like, Sweden and, you know, all over the place during, like, the four five hundreds, you know, 600s. And they talk about, like, the jewel-encrusted thing. They talk about the ring on the hilt. They talk about um, this phrase, which is uh, which literally means serpent marked on the blade. And so it has like all of these really great tidbits of information that if you happen to be a bladesmith or a you know historian of any sort, you see these things and you're like, oh, they're literally like the poet is telling you what kind of sword it was. Hmm. So I decided, well, shit, it would be cool as hell to make that sword. Um, and at that point, I had just learned how to make hearth steel, which is basically remelted iron uh, that you make in a small furnace. When you remelt it in charcoal, it basically is imbued with a bunch of carbon from the charcoal, and it turns into steel. But it's like really cruddy. It looks like a like a kind of diseased uh, fruit. <laughs> and you yeah, have to... I got you. I got that was, that was a good description, too. <laughs> Thanks. And so I thought, okay, well, I would love to make this blade out of this material. So I was like, cool, I'll just do that. No big deal. I started telling people like a year before the project was going to start that this is what I was doing. So I would kind of paint myself into a corner um, so I couldn't chicken out because it was a huge project. And what I ended up doing was for a full year leading up to the completion of the sword, by the light of the full moon, I was making steel. So every month under the full moon, I was remelting iron into steel. And by the time I was done, I had close to like 80 pounds of steel, which turned into this big sword. Light of the full moon. Oh, you yeah. You did, you did it to the, the historical accuracy of the way that they were doing it, too? I don't know if they were ever really doing that. I just, I wanted to add some sort of ritual to it. Oh, okay. I wanted to, you know, because I can make the thing all day long and it'll be whatever, but I wanted to have this, I don't know, I, I think intentionality is really important, not only in my work, but just in general. I feel like, you know, I could whip something out and it would be like, oh, cool, I made a sword. But I wanted it to have a little bit of like a little bit of extra oomph of some yeah. sort. So because I, I, you know, doing a little research uh, and it's stuff to talk about, I found that that's what when the Japanese bladesmiths were making swords, 
there was these purification rituals. Yes. Yeah. And they were they were going and they were purifying themselves and everything was about this ritual. I'm fascinated by the fact that you and your you, in Hampshire College must have been thrilled with you because you're <laughs> oh. you're doing a project based on a fucking poem and then you're going full blast and building a furnace and then you're making the steel from scratch. Dude, I am I'm still all over like the promotional material that they send out. I'll bet you're a good-looking guy too. I'm not surprised. <laughs> you're a good-looking guy. You make you like you're making swords from poems. I mean, Hampshire College. change the 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 art shop to the uh, Carrillo making it happen studio. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to pitch that name to them. I don't know if they'll take you it. Should, but... <laughs> they, they they should have you come back and do like a demo or something like that. Were you when you were doing by the full? Were you is that the first time you started building those furnaces to melt down to smelt iron? Well, so it was it was an evolution of that. Like I, the first time I went down to that hammer in down in Baltimore, like literally the first time I met other Smiths, there was this guy Mark Green who's out of uh, North Carolina, and he was making hearth steel in like a little bowl furnace with like you know bellows. He was like pumping them, right? And I got to talking with him, and I ended up pumping the bellows for him while we went through like I don't know fifty pounds of charcoal, remelting like half of a bloom to make steel out of it. And we talked a bunch, and he shared the process with me, and I was just like in love in that in, in that moment. I knew that I was going to make my own steel. I knew that it was totally inevitable, and that it was going to be this insane rabbit hole. And I wanted so desperately not to do it. I was like, I just don't have time for this right now. Yeah, it is huge like, undertaking, right? Yeah, and then of course a year later I was doing it, so that didn't really work too well. So I'm just picturing you. In the in in the in under the full under the full moon, but I know that, that you can see the the college <laughs> the college lamps are on. It's not like you didn't you hit the breakers or anything like that. It's a little bit of light. Oh no, this this was outside. I there was a little clearing next to the shop, and I basically like set my little furnace up on like a really decrepit coal forge uh, body, you know, that didn't have like the pan or any of that stuff. So I basically built it built the bricks up on top of that, so I didn't have to bend over all the time. Yeah. To like put the stuff in. And I literally just set up like a shot back and had it going, and I just went for it. And how it was long, each night. How long would it take to get where you needed to be? What, um, what would one night yield? I did about two or three hearth runs every night that I did it. So, in a furnace that size, the kind of optimal amount to put in is like two and a half or three pounds of of, of what, iron. And you were getting in what kind of what kind of what kind of raw materials were you getting? It, it's basically like 85 to like 90% yield is pretty standard. So I'd put in like two and a half pounds and get like two and a quarter or something. Of sand? Or... Oh, no, no, of like of like proper like forgeable steel. Like a oh, big... so like scraps. Yeah, or okay. not, not even scraps. These are like, these are like basically like f- kind of would fit in the palm of your hand, like heavy lumps of like fairly solid steel. And then I have to forge them out and then fold them and fold them and fold and fold and fold. And then get and then bored, and then keep and then folding. It's, and then, the, and then, as you're folding them, the the charcoal is adding the carbon to the steel. Well, the the kind of cool thing is the charcoal actually does that while you're in the furnace. Like you're, you know how like you want a reducing atmosphere in a forge, like it eats up all the oxygen. Yes, yes. Basically, more, more higher fuel. Yes, yes, less oxygen. Exactly. So in this in this furnace, you're actually getting the the iron to its melting point. And at that point, in an anaerobic atmosphere, it's basically taking all the carbon that's floating out of this charcoal, and it's just sucking it all in because it's really thirsty. And then it 
by the time you're done, you know, this, it, it takes about a half hour, maybe 40 minutes for each individual run. And by the time you're done, like you literally have a piece of pure iron. You can start with pure iron. And at the end, it's like almost cast iron, but it's still, it's still forgeable. So is it, you're putting it in, you're turning on the shop vac, you, I, I'm assuming, I, and, and then, and then is, is the, cause I've, the, the hearths I've seen, I don't know if you call yeah. it the furnace or whatever, they seem like they're built for one time use. They definitely can be. I ended up, um, a good friend of mine, uh, Zeb Deming, he showed me his hearth furnace, which is basically the exact same design I use now, which is literally like seven fire bricks with one of them cut at two thirds to hold your air blast like the two-year, your iron pipe. Okay. And you can literally put them as is, or you can, like, tie, tie like, bailing wire around it to hold it together. And you can do that, like, like that, no problem. I mean, I, I used to joke with people that you can literally do it in a hole in the ground. <laughs> and when I was in Iceland, I actually did. I did it, like, in a hole in the ground, lined with a bit of sand, and made steel. And it was, like, super simple. And I think that's the thing. I was super worried and scared about this stuff when I first started. Because it's, like, you know, it's a total mystery. Right. But I started doing it and I was like, okay, it's not that it's hard. It's just that it's very, very nuanced. Like for every piece I get right, there's, you know, four pieces that just didn't work out at all. So just curiosity, because I want to get back yeah. to the finished project. I want to get to, we got, we got, we got some ground. <laughs> we got to ground. You yeah, are, I'm, fa- I'm you're jumping the around a lot. <laughs> Dude, no, 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 you're good. You're done. No, no, this is fantastic. I, I, I just had a curiosity. Yeah. Because you know when you're using a coal forge, and I don't use or coke forge or whatever, I don't use them very often. But you you end up with a clinker at the bottom oh. of. Is a clinker have any a, a connection to making hearth steel? It it's it's I think it's a similar sort of byproduct. So I I never used coal. It was always charcoal, like hardwood. You okay. know, like love okay. charcoal. Um, and the 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 cool thing about the hearth process is it's like a three part refinement. So let's say that we went to the beach and instead of having a good day at the beach, you and I like went there with like, you know, Harbor freight magnets in a bucket. And we picked up all the black iron sand, which, you know, I've done before with like a couple friends and it is, you know, you get a bunch of heavy, heavy buckets. You put it through the, like the big stack, like the, you know, four foot tall bloomery furnace and you get a little, you know, like lump of, of iron basically. Right. If you take that iron and you, cut it up and you look at it, it's going to have impurities, it's going to have bits of charcoal stuck inside, it's going to have slag, it's going to have phosphorus, it's going to have bits of titanium, it's going to have bits of like all this shit you do not want. So then in a hearth furnace, you're using like a very scaled down version of that furnace. And whereas the ore never melts, you're doing a chemical like stripping of the oxide. Hmm. So iron oxide, you know, or um, like uh, uh, what's it called? Iron ore, right? Exists as usually Fe three hundred three or Fe three hundred four. Fe three hundred three is red rust or hematite. Fe three hundred four is mill scale. It's it's a uh, magnetite. And basically, what you're doing in this in the big furnace is you're using the the carbon monoxide that's leaving because of the burning uh, charcoal, and it's combining to turn into carbon dioxide because it's unhappy being unstable. And you end up with, instead of iron oxide, you end up with iron. And so the only issue is it's not pure, right? So this hearth remelting process is completely separate. And you actually take those lumps of kind of gross, shitty, low-carbon material, and you're removing 
the slag, which melts at a lower temperature, so it runs to the bottom and kind of creates like a little slag bowl, which is kind of like a clinker. And you're also adding the carbon. So that's two bits of refinement. And all the little pieces that you're adding in there, smaller the better because they melt easier, you're actually combining them into a solid chunk. So, so on yeah. the second, so the refinement comes when you don't, you do the first one, yes. you put it back in and the stuff that drains off the bottom is the more pure iron. Basically. Yeah. You're, you're taking like shitty iron and turning it into really nice. So you steel. could take, you could take clinkers and use, I mean, clink, that's kind of like the beginning stage of a clinker is the beginning stage of, of the hearth steel. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like kinda. gross. There's a bit of steel in there. Like there's. One of the things I like about it is, like, if you have a broken project, like, you got a pile of nice blades that didn't turn out, you can remel them. Just hmm. turn them into a chunk, you know, fold it a couple times and turn it into a new blade. And you're kind of, like, doing this, this kind of alchemic rebirth, which is kind of fun. So let's get back to the finished project. You, yeah. you're, you're doing the, you're, you got 20 pounds of steel. You got the Beowulf going. You got your teachers creaming in their jeans. They're so pumped. They're so pumped that finally we have a student who's actually taking a poem and making something from the poem that's actually interesting. People got to be watching you doing it. How did the, how did it come out? Oh, I, I mean, it came out. I think it came out great. Um, this this guy um, Matthew Barry, who's in uh, in Middletown, Connecticut, he's like a guy I met at Ashokan a couple years ago, and he is a master uh wax carver he like he does lost wax that is just gorgeous and so he helped me with the beowulf sword he and i chose a blade uh sorry a hilt of a blade um that was found in uh Balsternum, which i think is in gotland if i'm right um and he basically did the carving of the hilt while i finished the sword the reason this had to happen is because I am not good at time management, and I had a year, right, to work on this sword, and I just did commissions and kind of fucked off and made steel, and by the time I had, like, a couple months left, um, Carrie had already gotten in touch with me about doing the first show. So Wait, I went... Carrie? Who's Carrie? This is Carrie Stagmer. He's, uh, he's the guy who runs Baltimore Knife and Sword down in Baltimore, who hosted the Hammer Inn, which is the first one I went to. And the first show is? Uh, the first show was Man-at-Arms uh, on the El Rey Network. So um, you're in school, you're finishing off the Beowulf, and then they're already hooking you up for a TV show. Oh, yeah. So I, I went and did, like, I think it was two weeks of filming for me, and then the last week they sent me to Texas to do a promo shoot with Dan... Uh, with uh, Danny Trejo and Robert Rodriguez, which was a total blast. But, you know, idiot me, like, came back to school with a blade that wasn't forged. And by the way, this is like, I tried to make a copy of what I consider the most, like, absurd Viking sword that's ever been unearthed. So I was like, yeah, I'll just do this in the three weeks I have left because I'm an idiot. So I got back, realized how fucked I was, and I called Matt, and I was like, hey, dude, I... Matt who? Matt Barry, the the, the okay. carver, and I was like, "Hey, man, I might have fucked up. Could you do you think you could help me do this?" And the good luck was he had literally just retired. He was like, "Dude, I'm retired. I can do whatever I want." So he did the wax carving from start to complete sword assembled in less than seventeen days. And I, while he was doing the wax, I was 
furiously forging and grinding and polishing and you know dealing with the sword blade. And you got it done. I yeah, I managed to get everything done, which you know, which is cool because you don't often get to have your cake and eat it too. Yeah. But I got to do everything I wanted to do without you know any serious <laughs> serious side effects. And then the school was happy. You graduated. Yeah. Now let's get back into. So tell me about this TV show. One of a few that you've been in. Well, so it was the the very first one I did was um, was Forged and Fire. Like you know, two years after I started smithing, and I did fucking terribly. But then uh, Carrie brought me in for Man at Arms: Art of War, which was the you know the show that that. That, that we did it was a bunch of historical pieces for the first season and then uh i guess now, were uh, you on the crew that made stuff yeah How yeah that sh- he he brought he basically brought me in uh the guys that were working there at the time uh his brother matt and uh Ilya. oh i know uh, those guys yeah, yeah they're over with chris now yeah they're over with chris cash i think they listen yeah. to this podcast i'm not sure well, yeah, Matt and Matt and Ilya are great dudes. Chris yeah. is the, Chris is the man. I'm I'm sure I'll get so, a message from Ilya saying you misrepresented me or something. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> is that how he is? Is that uh, how he is? No, he's I, I love him to death. He he and I, you know, I mean, there there's a kind of stereotype about you know Russians being ornery and hard to get along with, but the first time I went down there, he and I hit it off like immediately. I think, I think part of it was he could tell that I was serious oh, and I that I wasn't you know. 100%. That I wasn't fucking around, and like, you know, he had this uh, this forging hammer, like a Japanese forging hammer, and I went to him and I was like, "Hey, I want to make a katana. Could you show me what to do, like how to forge it?" Um, and he handed me this like six pound hammer, you know, this like beautiful you know thing, but it was gigantic, way too yeah. heavy for me at the time. But I used it. He like gave me a bunch of tips. He helped me with like forging the geometry, and. You know, there was like the the peanut gallery, right? Like making fun of me, being like, "Oh yeah, you know, way to swing that big hammer and all that sort of stuff." And by the time it was like I was finished forging, one of them was like, you know, giving me a hard time. They're like, "Oh, you should ask if Ilya will give you that hammer so you can practice with it." And I was like, "Oh yeah, no, he he already gave it to me." Like he he said, "Hey, how do you like that hammer?" And I said, "Oh, it's fantastic." And he's like, "How would you like to own one?" And I was like, "Oh, if you're making them to sell, I would love it. To, you know, I would love to have a hammer like this." And he was like, no, 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 just take it. You know, it's for you. And so, like, okay. I feel I feel like from the beginning, he and I really connected on, like, a... Like, he's one of the few people that I know of who does the same thing that I used to do. Like, he would go and train. Like, forging and blacksmithing, you know, bladesmithing, whatever, is its own thing. You know, like, you can get good at it if you're 9 to 5 or whatever. But he lived, I think, like an hour, almost an hour and a half away from the shop. And every weekend, he would be there working on his own stuff, practicing, training, trying to become better at doing the Japanese stuff or pattern welding or whatever it was that he was applying himself to. And that's like, you know, that's the same sort of thing that I was doing all the time at school. Like, there would be beautiful days where all my friends were outside, like lying on the grass, getting stoned, like drinking or doing whatever. And I'd be like, no, I've got work to do. Sorry. You know? So it's like that seriousness, I think, was a big part of it. But that's a big problem now especially with younger people is they see these things and they just kind of want fast results and they're not willing to put the work in. I had that a lot with like, you know, the, the art students, the big, the big building where like the shop and the art um, like spaces were, were joined. There were a couple of different doors to get into either one of them, uh, like from the other one. And 
um, I, you know, I did a couple sculpture classes and stuff like that, and we would do critiques and, you know, I, I would get some of the students coming up to me and asking like how I was so good at what I was doing or, or like, how did I do this? Like, where did you learn that? And the answer was usually like, oh, I have taught myself pretty much everything. And the only difference is that, you know, you're spending all your time partying and doing, you know, whatever and not applying to your, you know, yourself to your craft or your art. Um, and, you know, it's not like I wasn't enjoying myself and having fun. It was mostly that I realized that I had a very rare opportunity to apply myself as fully as I was willing to commit to this thing. And so that was it. Like, I needed to do that because it's just how I needed to do things. And you paid off. I hope so. I mean, you know, I... I, to me, honestly, to me, seven years is a fucking eternity. It seems like I've been doing this forever, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not that long. It's a blink. Yeah. It's a total blink. Well, I, he, so so to get back to, so Danny Trejo and Robert, Robert Rodriguez were good dudes? Oh, yeah. They were fantastic. Um, uh, Robert's, so, you know, you know the whole, like, uh, another cliche, like, oh, you know, meeting my heroes, that sort of thing? Right. I I grew up watching a lot of Robert's films, and yeah. the one that I loved the most was Once Upon a Time in Mexico. I don't know that's if you've ever great, seen that one. That's a great fucking movie. So that movie, great fucking movie. they that, filmed, but that's not his his first movie was. It was Desperado, I think. I think there was one. I think that there was one. There was El Mariachi was the first one. Was it? Oh, I, yeah, I think you might be right. Yeah. That's the one he made. He like he he the the story For like a thousand dollars or something. That crazy he put like that. himself. He 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 sold himself to science. So he could get money. He used his body for to test for testing uh, medical for drugs and oh, he sold crazy. his body to, for science so he could make money to make fucking El Mariachi. Dude, I, whatever they whatever they did to him worked because he is <laughs> huge and jacked. Is he? Oh yeah, yeah. He is. He's an intimidating but incredibly nice guy. So basically, um, I grew up watching that movie and. It was actually filmed in the town where I was born, in San Miguel de Allende. In you're from San Miguel? Yeah, dude. I just that was the last time I was in Mexico. My dad's favorite place was San Miguel. He was Wait, really? From, yeah, that's, yeah. We that's went, crazy. The last trip I before my dad died, he took my sisters and my wife and my newly born daughter. We all went to San Miguel, and we uh, he used to go all the time. He spent years down there because oh, uh, he's a watercolorist. Dude, he's that a painter. Place is, that place is amazing, especially his, for that. I mean, holy shit. Oh, his painting. I mean, the paintings, the, the, the Americans down there, there are tons of painters down in San Miguel. And my sisters used to go. My dad used to take my sisters there every year. And then um, the last time I was in Mexico, that's we went to San Miguel. That's so cool. Yeah, I, I haven't been back since I was probably like maybe seven or eight or something like that. But it's like, you know, like one of the scenes uh, where they're like, you know, the motorcycle chase, they like jump through this like gate, this like arch basically, I don't and remember. go into a park. I well, if, 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 if you end up seeing that part, like m the house where I was born is literally on the corner of that oh. park. And so when we were down there, my mom showed me like, hey, this is the house we were born in and like showed me like, oh, and this is from the movie. And I was just like blown away. And so the thing is like, you know, there's so much stuff from that movie that I love. Like, you know, the one of the lines to Danny Trejo, like, well, you know, he's like, not sure if you can do something. It's like, well, are you a Mexican or a Mexicant? And he just looks real pissed for a second. And he's like, I'm a Mexican. Like, that sort of thing. <laughs> I fucking love it. And so, like, 
you know, getting to hang out with them, like I was there for like three days, maybe. And the job that I was there to do was I sharpened the swords that they had that Carrie and the guys had made in the previous online, like YouTube edition of Man at Arms. Right. And we literally spent three days like cutting stuff, swinging swords around. Like at one point, um, I'll have to send you the photo. There's like this photo of me and Danny, like next to like this uh, trash can that's just full of fruit. You have because... to send that to me because I need it for the picture for the, oh, for the show. You yeah, have to I'll, send them I'll, I'll, I'll send you both. There's one of me okay. and Danny and one of me and Danny and Robert. And um, we're eating honeydew with like these plastic spoons, like, you know, kneeling next to the, this like garbage can full of just like all this fruit we've decimated. And when we were cutting the stuff, he's like, hey, does anybody have a spoon? And they're like, what? What, what do you mean? And they're like, and he just, he's like, okay, could you, could you get us some spoons? And like someone runs into the warehouse, like gets us some, some spoons, and he just like picks up one of the things of honeydew, and he just starts eating it. And he's like, "I fucking love honeydew." <laughs> <laughs> he just keeps eating it, and it was like, like when when we were there, uh, like you know the the like Robert's right hand man, like his his like first director or whatever, he was the one who was directing all of us on this. Like it was a, a promo for the show, and. We were shooting like on this gigantic like there's two huge warehouses that robert has all his stuff in one is full of sets like they were working on alita battle angel at the time so i like walked around the oh. sets for that um and it was it was super super fun but uh uh there was like some construction happening like out of the lot like way down there was like a railroad track or something and there were guys making noise and danny was like trying to say his lines and they kept making sound just as he was going to go or like halfway through. And he just left and he goes over, you know, it's like, you know, from like, he was basically gone out of my vision by the time he got over to them. And like five minutes later, he comes back and we didn't hear a peep for like the, the next three, you know, two days that we were there. It was wild. He's just He's a real tough dude. Oh dude. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine you're like, they're on a job site with like, you know, your coworkers, you're like, you know, making noise, you're like having fun. And then this fucking guy shows up and he's just like, you better fucking cut it out. <laughs> like, <laughs> holy shit. Yeah, but he was, he really served time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he was in San Quentin for a while. I can't remember how long, but like, yeah, he's, he's a tough motherfucker. Um, wow. They, they also, uh, as part of the, the, like the video, they cut my hand off. And so, like, there was a, a like a little prosthetic hand that they used for from dust till dawn that I was holding in one hand, and this like this guy basically put tubes through my sleeve and like made a stump, you know, like I kind of balled up my fist and they like made a little stump. Yeah. And there's this guy off screen just like pumping, like pumping this red, you know, like <laughs> food coloring, and I'm just like spurting blood holding this hand at the end of it, and I got to bring the hand home, so I've got that with me. Dude. Um, so yeah, that that was that was maybe one of the coolest things I've ever been paid to do to just hang out and cut like play Fruit Ninja with Danny Trejo and Robert Rodriguez for three days. Jesus. You know, I want just real quick about San Miguel. Yeah. There's San Miguel is kind of in the middle of nowhere a little bit. It's not it's not like a it's not like you don't fly, I don't seem to remember you fly do you fly into San Miguel? I think 100%. I think you might be able to now, but from what I understand before, like Guanajuato is right at the very very bottom end of Mexico, so it's like 
the when we went there, we were going from Chihuahua, which is where the rest of my family is, which is way the fuck at the north of <laughs> of yeah. Mexico. So I think we were on a bus for like I don't know, like a day and a half or something. Like it was insane. But from what I remember, I think now there's an airport like in or right outside of San Miguel. There's a huge uh, American expatriate community yeah. there. Yeah. My uh, my like sword, uh, Japanese like sword mentor, basically, he, his wife is um, a really like well-known, um, God, he's making me for forgetting some sort of, he I think, I think, I think psychotherapist, but I could be wrong. But at any rate, there's like a conference that happens like every year down in San Miguel with, with a bunch of like the expats that are down there. And she like goes down and teaches there. So he and I had the same realization as you and I just did, where I was like, oh yeah, you know where I'm from, from San Miguel. And he's like, what? Wait, really? But it's a very old, it almost looks like an old European, old European villa with cobblestone streets. And it's very, there's a very European quality to it, but it's kind of in the, kind of in the desert. Yeah. Have you been to the, to the, I mean, I'm sure you have to the uh, cathedral that's there. No, I don't remember. I, honestly, it wasn't a great trip for us as a family, to be honest with you. <laughs> it was like everybody was pissed off. My dad and his wife were not super pleasant. And, you know, my sisters were not thrilled. And, well, and you my also kid had, like, didn't a really want to be there. She was like three and just oh, never like mind. Not, but yeah, still. The whole thing was, I would, I would have, ref- it was a beautiful town. It wasn't a great vacation. But other than that, it was, I don't remember, I don't remember a whole lot other than, we're like I remember getting to the airport saying we're not coming back to Mexico. For <laughs> but that was about it. <laughs> I think I may have said that. I have my grandfather yeah. um, lived in South America. He was, um, and he worked for um, an exporter, and he was actually the the lead man for this developer in South America. So my grandfather actually oversaw the building of this is my on my mother's side. Yeah. Oversaw the building of the Acapulco Princess in Acapulco. And oh, cool. we, we had family we had family and family friends all over Mexico. Kind of like not related family. Yeah. But like we'd go down there every so often because I had family in Mexico City and and, and Yeah, like the kind of unofficial uncles and aunts Right, and exactly. Sort of they were like, yeah. So we always said we had family in Mexico. Yeah. I mean not blood family, but they were family. And yeah. uh so I went so many times, every single time I seem to remember going to the airport saying, I'm not going back to Mexico for a while. <laughs> but the last time was definitely San Miguel. It was a beautiful town, it was a shitty vacation, but it was a, it was a beautiful, beautiful place. Yeah, I, I miss it. I want to go back soon. So you did Danny Trejo. Oh yeah, so you that did... was that was the first show. Um, second one was just the second season of the same show, pretty much, um, pretty much about the same. Um, we did a little more, like instead of just historical stuff, there was like stuff from, I think there was like some stuff from like DC, from like uh, like some like superhero movies and stuff like that. It was it was still a lot of fun. What, now, where was the where was the main filming? So the main filming, like the making, so for like each episode, right, like eight episodes or whatever, you would start in what they, I think we're calling like the war room, which was out in LA. It was like Carrie and Matt Anilia and like Robert Rodriguez and a few like other experts. Uh, this guy, Gene Ching, he's like a, a you know, martial arts like expert. He's fantastic. And so all those guys were out there in LA, but they filmed all that stuff after so we would make the stuff first and then they would go out there they would film like the pre like you know the early episode stuff and then like testing of the weapons and stuff like that out there so were they flying you out there a lot 
Oh no, I I didn't end up doing the uh, doing the like testing out there, um, okay. which you know which would have been fun. But honestly, like I the days were pretty intense. Like I remember, um, one of the producers got really mad at me because well, so you know me and all of the the rest of the, the like the crew, like you know the non local crew, like the the DP and like all the other guys, like people that I worked with on that show who were fantastic, like some. Of, some of the coolest people I've ever I've ever come across in like a professional setting. Um, they we were all like in this hotel that's probably like you know a half hour away or something, maybe twenty minutes, and everyone got the flu. I think this is the first year that I did it, like the first shoot. And I woke up like one morning. You know, I was getting up at like five thirty, getting ready, getting out the door, showing up on set by seven. Um, and the next day I had like some stuff that I had to shoot pretty early. Um, and, you know, this can be like anything from actually forging or making stuff or just like talking to the camera and telling them right. what, what we're doing. And I like woke up, threw up, like, you know, took a quick shower, got in the car, drove over, was eating an apple, had to pull over on the way there to like throw up, <laughs> like, you know, washed out my mouth, like got to set. And he like pulls me aside and he's like, look, this is really fucking unprofessional. Like, there's a lot of people here who are not working because you're not here and you're the talent and we need you to be here. And I'm like, I'm like, I threw up on the way here. Like, the reason I'm late is because I was busy like yakking my fucking brains out on the way here. So I was like, I get it, but I'm not, I'm not trying to fuck you or anyone else over. I'm just trying to like, um, but so- you know, those, their job. Oh, their yeah. job is like I mean they, they it, the 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 count I mean the 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 meters running on that of those guys oh shit shows. yeah I mean dude being a producer on that that is not a job I envy like it is that there's nothing easy about that sort of job I can, I can't even imagine how stressful it is did you ever meet Tony Swatton yeah I I met him once uh, at the 2014 Abana conference in Delaware he's like the king he's the king of Hollywood forging and and armor making and and sword making he's a fucking good dude and he he did the original man-at-arms show on youtube which carrie and the guys took over after like yeah um tony was he was doing some demos i think alongside the bks guys um at the Havana conference uh which was super fun i mean it was it was a really good time um he's kind of cornered the market on like movie oh yeah armor in swords, right? Yeah. I mean, and I is mean, there anybody else doing that shit? Dude, I, I can't. I mean, the the only person I know that I can think of off the top of my head is my buddy Dave Delagardel. He did the 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 Heimdall's sword for the first Thor movie. He and his uh, his partner at the time, Andy, they like built that. Uh, you know, did one out of aluminum and one out of steel, I think, and that's what they've based all of the swords and the movies from since. But like, I'm I like. Outside of that, and some guys in the UK, um, this guy Todd, um, whose last name escapes me, but yeah, he he did all the Witcher swords. Um, like, yeah, there's there's work out there for you know bladesmiths who want to do cool shit, but it's it hard seems, to find. It seems that way, but but Tony is like, I'm gonna get Tony on this thing at some point. I I'm I we're friendly through you know Facebook and yeah yeah we know we know we have people in common and we we. It got a good thing going, but I'd love to talk to him only because he really ha- he is one of these guys who's completely cornered the market on, you know, movie props. Oh yeah, yeah, and I mean he, I, from what I remember, I think he was 
He's he's English originally, and I think he started his blacksmithing out there, and then moved to the states. Hmm. I can't remember exactly, but it's it's. I mean, I'd love to hear his story. Well, let's get back to you. <laughs> so now you did two seasons of TV. You liked it or you didn't like it? Oh, it was fun. It was a, it was a ton of fun. I, I would love to do it again. And then from there, can we just go? I'm going to fast forward. Yeah. Because I want to talk about your trip to Iceland. Oh yeah. You sent me a message about what you had done, and you got invited on this incredible trip. And why don't you talk about it? Yeah, so basically, um, I feel like a lot of the the last half of this is going to center around the New England School. Um, Yes. When I was up there for, I think, the first hammer-in that I went to at the New England School, which I want to say was probably 2017, um, I, uh, Barbara, who, you know, often does, like, the, the sign in and all that sort of stuff up Barbara there. Barbara works at the school. Uh, I don't know. Barbara doesn't work at the school. I think she okay. lives in. Barbara's just part of, the, she's yeah. part of the team. Yeah, Barbara Wechter. She's she's a bladesmith and is doing some really cool stuff okay. also. Um, and I, you know, was up there talking with her, and she said, "Hey, you know, this group that I'm a part of, Hurstwick, which is basically like a Viking research group, like you know, in, into research about the sagas, about the." Um, about the combat weapons, like just a little kind of multifaceted, like research type group. Um, they were in the process of learning how to do iron smelting because they wanted to try doing it in Iceland. And so she invited me and said, Hey, you know, it would be great if you, you know, would come and like, if you have any interest or whatever. Um, and the guy who runs Herswick is this guy, Bill Short. Um, he is a really fantastic scholar and when I was still at Hampshire, before I really had done a lot of the stuff I've done now, I saw a talk that he gave um, at UMass, one of the colleges nearby, and I went out there and he gave a talk on like Viking, um, on Viking combat and games and history and like just everything. And he, he was fascinating. I, I loved every second of it. And so he and I had corresponded a couple times, but I went out there and basically helped them kind of learn some of the stuff about iron smelting so like how to you know build the furnace like some of the times we might want to shoot for like just you know the ore like just as as much as i knew i tried to share uh, with them and i think in the year leading up to the expedition to iceland we might have done like 15 smelts or something like that wow um and basically the idea was iceland was making tons like tons and tons and tons of iron um the settlers that showed up there um tried bringing iron making technology with them but something was different there is something in the historical record bill just gave a great talk about this uh to i think the new england archaeological society i probably butchered that but he, he he tells it far better than i do but basically uh they learned how to make iron in iceland and made so much of it that at one site, Skogar, which he went and spent some time at, they made an estimated 1,000 tons of iron over 300 years. Jesus. Which like kind of means that they were doing a smelt almost every day or every other day. Um, the slag pits there are like two stories tall. Oh my god. It's, so is this from it's mind-blowing. Is this, this is all from sand from the, the... No, so this is the really cool thing. Iceland is a volcanic island and has iron ore everywhere. Hmm. The water is rich with iron. Like fil- they filter all their water basically like cuz otherwise it's too full of iron. Like 
everywhere we went, all the streams were red. There was bog iron everywhere. And basically, back in the day, you would, you know, use up what iron was being made because it's like the byproduct of a bacteria. It's like part of their life cycle, creating this ore. And so, like, if you're, if I don't know if you've ever been like on a on a river and there's like this oil slick. Yeah. Like on the very edges of the bank. Yeah. That, along with like red soil, is a sure sign of iron. Huh. There's iron everywhere up there. It's literally just full of it. And because of that, um, the fact that there's iron literally everywhere you look, we had no problem getting iron ore. Um, we had the forestry service. They helped us make charcoal, which they brought, you know, in gigantic quantities. And basically the tough thing was finding clay that was able to withstand the heat necessary to do an iron smelt. Um, we had this, this lady, Hatla, who was really wonderful. She um, brought us clay, which is naturally occurring on her farm. And we did experiments and mixed horse dung with it to try to add some refractive properties to make it higher temp. Really? It was, oh yeah, yeah. There was an entire, like, team on, you know, of our, part of our team dedicated to roasting horse manure to make ash. It was, oh yeah, that, that, that was not fun. Um, I, I didn't end up having to do any of it. I was dealing with, you know, with the ore and with the charcoal and stuff like that, but <laughs> yeah, you're not on, you're not on a, a shit roasting. Duty. <laughs> I understand. Um, but it was, I mean, it was fantastic. Basically we did it at the site of Eric Stadter, which is where Eric the Red was from. Right. Um, who's Leif Erikson's dad, who, you know, was famously, you know, suppose, supposedly the guy who came over to, the, to, uh, to our continent. Um, and so basically we held like a three day festival there on the site of of Eric Stadter, where we ran three different smelts. One of them was a control furnace, which uh, Jeff Pringle, um, uh, he, he's like uh, based out in Oakland. He's actually, I think he's friends with, with, uh, with Leia. Huh. Um, when, I, when I went to follow her, like uh, Jim Austin and Jeff and a few others were, were like mutual friends or whatever. But anyway, yeah, so he's out there um, and he and like his, his team uh, came over and we did the, the 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 control smelt together. We made like a really nice chunk of iron that was supremely forgeable. It was very very pure, good iron. But so here's the thing, right? Iron on its own is like straight up iron, right? Like I'm talking no carbon. Um, and so the stuff we made was very pure. It forged extremely well. Um, Jim was able to cut a sliver off of one of the bars and forge it down. And the and the thing is like when you forge stuff like that into a coin, it should like break and crack and turn into like dust almost. You know, like the edges should be garbage. Hmm. But it basically like it, it looks tears. Like, yeah. Like but sometimes it, I've used iron and sometimes it just starts to tear. Yeah. And so this stuff that he forged straight out of the furnace, like the edges were tiniest amount cracked. That was hmm. it. Like it was incredibly what does that valuable. Mean? It just means it was really good quality. Like everything came together. There was a small amount of slag. And basically, you know, we had success. Um, when Norway took over Iceland in like the 1200s, I think, they basically were like, well, we've got a captive audience and one of our exports is iron and steel. So we're going to make them buy from us. And um, people stopped making iron in Iceland. And so hmm. they haven't done it in like 750 years. That's crazy. Give or take. Considering it's so, and just to let you know, it reminds me, yeah. my, um, my buddy Nico Tavernisi, we did a couple episodes ago, 
when he was filming, he was on the movie Noah and they were in Iceland filming. Yeah. He actually had an eye infection because the sand had iron in it and it went into his eye and he got a terrible eye infection because the, he said, he said that the, when the wind would blow the sand, it was like, I mean, it was like being hit with like glass. It was like, it was oh, yeah. terrible. And it was, he says, I got the eye infection because of the iron in the sand. Dude, that, that place is like being on the moon. It is like some of the most like severe and beautiful landscape I've ever seen. It's, it's super, super like mind blowing to be. In, in a place like that that's so like you know everything is volcanic it's just there's like gigantic rock formations coming out of nowhere like left and right it's just like it's a very surreal thing to be around but the food sucks though right we we had some pretty good luck with the food um but you know it's it's tough because everything is so spread out like you know you can't just like pop down the road and find a mcdonald's like if you're in reykjavik sure but we were like out in the kind of like west fjord sort of area like couple hours out of Reykjavik and so things are a lot smaller towns are pretty small I mean it was it was pretty cool um, I heard some things <laughs> I heard some things I heard some things about the food in Iceland my wife is dying to go to Iceland and I've been told like yo the food is not good we we had some pretty decent luck but you know I I don't know maybe 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 my heart's a little or uh, my uh, stomach's a little heartier um, fine no but you're you're a, you're, but you're a purist though Emiliano, you're a total purist. You, oh, dude, if they you, brought out the the rotten shark, I would have been like, "Let's do it." <laughs> the rotten shark sounds dumb. Hey, I, yeah, I, yeah, I kind of so, have so, to agree with that. That's uh, like a <laughs> the fermented rotten. Yeah, who cares? I'm talking about that. I'm uh, just, I was just told that uh, Nico is telling me that because everything's flown in, oh, it's sure. like super expensive and nothing's great. We so. had we had a lot of a lot of seafood while we were there. Like a lot of the places that we went, like there were fishing villages and like people were like catching and stuff like so a lot of the stuff we had was like really really good um so i if it's so high in iron i'd be nervous about eating any seafood coming close to iceland right oh yeah maybe you're right i don't know what the fuck do i know i don't know (laughs) so that sounded like an amazing trip oh yeah it was a blast i mean you know i you know we we made iron there for the first time as far as we're aware in like you know, three quarters of a, of a, of a millennium. Like that's, that's crazy. That's insane. That's crazy that, 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 but it's very typical of modern day where we've, we don't pass along. A lot of people just don't pass along this information. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I, I find so fascinating about craft in Europe. Like a lot of the bladesmiths who were just of supreme talent, you know, like some of the guys in the Czech Republic and Sweden, like Norway, these are guys who maybe they didn't learn from, you know, like their father or their father's father or whatever. But the generational knowledge exists over there. Like here we have, you know, at best, like 250 years worth of knowledge to draw on. But there it's like, you know, it's in the, it's in the, it's in the trees, it's in the grass, like it's everywhere. It's just like, there's, there's this history that's so palpable. Like, um, I, a a friend of mine in the UK, oh, and his like, his house key is like, gigantic it's like one of those old you know iron like you know what i mean like it, there's just yeah, I know this, what you're talking about. it's a giant yeah there, it's just like you don't have you don't find stuff like that here you know like his his the the property that is that is uh houses on is like it's like a 500 year old farm you know like that's just insane it's crazy so now i want to get back to the last yeah. thing 
You are, P.S., you're welcome <laughs> on the show anytime you want. You're fantastic. Okay. You have an open invite whenever you want. I, I, I got a lot more questions, and I'm looking at the time, and I want to make sure I get to all the stuff I want to get to. You didn't have a good experience on Forge and Fire. You had a good experience. You had a great experience on Man at Arms. Yeah. But of all the competition-y kind of things that you've been involved in, I think that the one thing that is the highest level for you is being a two two time battle champion of the uh, of the uh, of this of the uh, New England School of Metalwork. Thank you. Yeah, that that was a lot of fun and also just so nerve wracking. Oh, I like... can't imagine. <laughs> so, can just to break it down, if you the yeah. New England School of Medicine, a uh, New England School of <laughs> of metalwork <laughs> is probably the best i would say it is the best working metal shop uh that that specializes in in knife making and blacksmithing oh, yeah. in the northeast yeah specifically I, to the point where they're accredited with but from through the abs i i literally this this past weekend i went and bought a bunch of a bunch of wood up in new hampshire like some maple and some stuff um and the guy who was working there i like i he was interested in bladesmithing and I pointed him at the New England School of Metalwork and I said, do whatever it takes to get there because right. that place is the best school I've I've ever been to. No question. As far as teaching schools, it's the best. Yeah. So you've taught classes there. Yeah. And that, then that was the first time I went up there. You got invited to a compete in the battle championship. Battle champion. Yeah. So talk the, about that. So basically the the New England School of Metalwork the the hammer that they host I think it's usually like in July, um, they do like I think it's basically the full weekend. They do a bunch of really wonderful talks and lectures and demos by a bunch of different people. Uh, you get guys like you know Ben Breda doing like anything from sheath work to hamon making. Um, you know like you got obviously Nick Rossi, Jay Morrissey, like all these guys who really know what they're doing, and they're you know, it, it's like a fantastic, fantastic place to go and learn anything. Oh, 100%. And every year, I think on Saturday night, they do this two-hour challenge. It's called the Battle of the Bladesmiths, and it is four makers who are given a bar of steel, and they have two hours to turn that bar of steel into a hardened, polished, sharpened, handled knife. And it can be, you know, the, the parameters change a little bit every year. There's a different challenge to keep things interesting. Um, so they basically just tell you, all right, go, you know, do it. So um, the first year you competed against who? The first year I was, um, oh, fuck. I was up against, uh, oh, holy shit. I'm blanking so hard right now. Mace. So Mace, I think I was up against him the last time I did it. Because right. um, the last time I, I did it, it was, fuck, I, Nate Zimmer. That's, Nate Zimmerman. Yes. Fucking Zimmerman. big Nate. Fuck, Love yeah. Nate. Yeah, yeah. He was Good fantastic. He, he came out for it. So that was one of Milwaukee. Milwaukee's finest. Yeah. Milwaukee's finest. Oh, it, it was a blast. And I, so I went up against him and I think Jay. And Jay, Jason Morrissey. Yeah. And for the and for the life of me, I can't remember who the fourth person was, which I feel a little terrible sure about. Sure wasn't sure wasn't sure wasn't Mace. He was in the last one. Uh, it it could have been. I'm pretty sure I, Mace was. I was up against Mace in the in the so, most recent so, one. So the, the the difference between this and Forge and Fire is 
the people who are at this hammer in are high level dudes. Oh yeah. I know Nick Anger was there. I know that like uh uh all these dudes, uh, you know, Nate's buddy, I know uh, my buddy uh <sighs> there were some fucking bad motherfuckers there. Isaiah Schroeder was there. Yeah, he was actually wanting wanting to know where I was, why I wasn't up there. <laughs> there were some fucking high level metal workers and bladesmiths in the gallery while you were forging in two hours this knife. Yeah, and you know that was the thing when you know when you're doing um, like Forge and Fire or whatever. It's you know you have six hours. It's you know three hours the first time, three hours the next time. Like right. that's a lot of time. That's like <laughs> that's a shitload of time. Dang, you hear that? People have been on Forge and Fire it's a long time. <laughs> oh, of course, it was it was Isaiah. Isaiah was in the first year with. Oh, me. was Isaiah when this in the first year? Yeah, yeah. So it was me and Fucking good dude. Yeah, Isaiah, Jay, and Nate. So, okay, yeah, so basically you're surrounded by a bunch of people who really know what they're doing, 100%. and you have to forge a knife. And the first year it was like, all right, forge like a four to six inch knife. Uh, you know, it has to have a guard. So I made a fairly traditional sax with an iron, you know, like plate uh, meeting up to the, uh, to the blade and a maple handle. Finished that up, got it good, and then that was, that was it. Um, they, there was a vo- they voted that year, um, so it was like by number of votes, like people present who were like, "Oh, I like that knife the best." Pretty fucking, pretty fucking, mer- uh, get some good meritocracy right there. <laughs> exactly. But the second year, what they did was was really so cool. So you win the first year. Oh yeah. Main oxy, main oxy gives you one of those big checks. Yeah, yeah, for uh, for a thousand bucks, which not was bad. fantastic for two hours worth of work. Not bad. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a pretty good hourly rate. Yeah, damn good. Um, right, and then, so then they invite you back the next year. Yeah, or you just showed up and say you just put your well, you just no, put, they, the, put your put your championship belt on the line, saying let's do this again. They, they told me since I won, I was like in for the next year. Oh. They're like they're like you have to defend your defend your belt. Yeah, you gotta you gotta defend your honor. That might be harder. <laughs> that might be harder than the first time because there's no pressure on the first time. Now you gotta you gotta back it up the second time. Oh yeah, well, and I mean the first time I did it and the second time. I was giving like a lecture and a demo oh, during the hammering. So like the the battle to be honest was like the secondary concern. Like I wanted to do a good job teaching. Right. And like, you know, be able to really get so the, while the you were So while you were making this knife in 2 hours, you were also kind of like demoing it at the same time? No, no, no. The the Oh thank god cuz that oh, would have been arrogant. Yeah, yeah that no. Been super arrogant. Oh no. I I I got plenty arrogant during that, but <laughs> Uh, at one point somebody came up to me uh like through the window like you know the grinding room like the windows were open people were outside and i was like grinding i think they had me on facebook live and they were like hey what are you doing and i was, and i just like looked up and i said winning and kept grinding Dang! which was which is like such a douchey thing to say right <laughs> i i love the fact that you you said you said that I'm winning. I'm winning. I, you know what? That's fucking awesome. Well, yeah, but it's it also you know looking back at it, it comes off as like super douchey. Of course, but I mean, but <laughs> fine, no problem. So you won that one. You get you have to come back the next yeah, year so, to defend your yeah. Belt. So basically, I you know was like taking a photo with them, like shaking hands, and then you know Derek kind of you know leans over and he's like, "All right, you're you're on the." Derek yeah, Glazer, the, right? the you know the guy who he's the pre- is he the president or he, he runs, yeah he runs the New England he school. runs the new, right um and he he just looks at me he's like well you're <laughs> you're on the you're on the hook for next year 
Um, so I had to go back and, you know, like you said, defend, uh, you know, defend my title, the defend belt. my honor, um, which, you know, which was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, basically I showed up, I was giving another demo and another lecture, uh, which happened. I think my demo was like that, the, the day of the, um, of the battle. Um, and you know, it's the same challenge. It's like a two hour knife, but this time I, I fucked something up. Um, basically Nick, you know, Nick Rossi, who was kind of in charge of getting all that stuff sorted out. He sent us a message like to me and the other contestants. And he said, Hey, you know, just so you know, the challenge is going to be like, you know, here's the dimensions. Here's what you have to do. I read it too quickly and I totally misread it. So, you know, like notation for like one inch versus right. one foot right. is like the right. apostrophes. So he wrote one foot. And I was like, okay, wait, I'm sorry, is that inches or feet? And he said, oh, yeah, it's one. And then reiterated, he used the apostrophes again. And I misread that. And I was like, oh, wow, we only have an inch? So it's literally like <laughs> an inch by an inch and a half by a quarter inch to make a four, of yeah, steel. to make a four to six inch knife. I was like, that sounds fantastic. So I went into my shop and made two practice knives. So wait, what? So wait, so you said you thought it was one by one inch, and then he, he what he meant was how? What, what they meant was I'd get a piece of 1084 that was like an inch and a half by a foot by a quarter inch. But what okay. I thought I had was an inch by an inch and a half by a quarter inch. So this tiny little coupon of steel. And so right. I went to my shop and I cut out those little, a little couple little coupons and I did a couple two hour knives. So I forged out a little blade, you know, like long kind of trout type knife um, right. out of this tiny sliver of steel and then made a handle and a guard for it, put it together. I did that twice. And then I show up to the challenge and they bring out the cart and there's four pieces of foot long 1084. And I look at Nick and I'm like, dude, what the fuck is that? Are you is, is that our steel? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, it's a foot? He's like, yeah. Why, what do you mean? What else would it be? I, and I was like, I thought you said it was an inch. I thought that was the challenge. <laughs> I thought the challenge was... <laughs> That's a huge, difference. Yeah. a huge difference. And I'd brought, like, wood to make, you know, a, a, a tiny knife. I'd brought a punch to make a tiny knife. I'd brought, like, tongs. Like, all my tools were based Everything on making a tiny, a tiny knife. knife but instead i had to make a regular size knife so i really had to <laughs> kind of make sure everything was right on um but so the second year was me versus lin ray who is an incredible master smith amazing just the best amazing. and just one of the i don't make dudes. i don't make blacksmith i won't make a blacksmith knife anymore just because oh, it's like what's the dude, point in in the in the group chat before like leading up to this he made an illusion to being able to make one of his x-ray bowies in like less than two hours. And I, 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 that. I shit myself just straight up. I was like, there's no I, way. I believe that. I totally believe that. Cause I actually did. I offered to do a watercolor drawing of his, you know, yeah. I do that for every so often to people. And he, he got on the phone with me. I was on the phone with him for a few hours. He sent me videos, he sent me drawings and stuff like that. And he, gave me the step-by-step -step and i said listen this is for you i want you to have this and then you know the caveat is i have yeah. you know the notes you know i made it two copies of the watercolor i gave one yeah him. and if he says he can do it in two hours i believe oh yeah and that's I what totally i was scared of because i'm like how do you beat that there's no way i mean that's, that's no, you don't beat you don't beat that up, you don't beat like, the x-ray knife like above like upper class work like that's 
Yeah, so it was me and him, Josh Weston, and Mace Vitale, who were in the challenge. On, uh, big lineup. Another big lineup. Oh, yeah. Another big lineup. Yeah, and I I had a, because of where, like, my shop situation at the time, I basically was able to get in to do a practice round with, like, a 36 grip belt that was dead, like, beyond dead, like, should have been in the trash dead. And so yeah. my practice knife took me, like, two hours, 20 minutes. And I was like, well, it'll be fine. So I oh so you did get one more practice round before you got to do the yeah. event yeah I got a chance to do one and it did not go well I and how long was the knife supposed it was to be? same thing four to six inch knife um and basically um I just like I I kind of panicked because because <laughs> you know like you you have a tiny or what I thought was a tiny amount of material to make something. And only this amount of time, and then I showed up, and we had a more, way more material. And what I did is I just put my headphones in, and I picked two albums that I like that are about an hour each, and I just hit play, <laughs> and I tuned everything else out, and I just worked. I forged my blade, I hardened it while I, while it was um, cooling down during the normalizations. I went and drilled my handle material, and glued my bolster, and like started prepping that stuff. And basically, um, I because of the type of blade I make, right? I was making a sax. Their triangular cross section from the from the notch, you know, where the shoulders are, through right. the tang is a taper. So I can grind that vertically on the belt grinder and make my scratch pattern right. look real nice. So because there's no plunge exactly. There. So I basically forged a sax about as well as I could do in two hours and literally finished like as the count was being done like 10 9 8 and then i put it down wow. on the on the table with like a second or two to spare which was way closer than i was comfortable cutting it dude and i thought how are you guys tempering them with like torches um, yeah i mean you 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 definitely can i think i hardened mine and then i'm pretty sure i tempered it quickly in the forge it's a japanese uh like a snap temper it's basically heating it up until water boils off of it. It's like a very rudimentary, quick temper. I think I might have done that twice on that blade. Um, but yeah, basically, uh, this this time around, there was like a panel of judges. Wait, so just yeah. so we're, just for, for how do you do that? Oh, yeah. So, so basically, um, it's traditionally done in a charcoal forge, uh, like over top of the flames. But in this case, yeah. um, I basically do it in a forge that's either pretty low or already off. And I basically wet the blade, you know, dunk it in the water, bring it in, and keeps taking it in and out of the water and dipping the tip because the tip will overheat. And you're basically waiting for the water that's on the surface to boil off. Like, you know that dance that water does when it's on hot steel? Yeah. You're basically waiting for that, and then you quench it again. And when you take it out, what you'll probably see is a fairly even kind of golden straw color on your steel. Look at you. So it's like, Look it's a awesome. Japanese technique that turns out is pretty helpful in other avenues. And um, this time around, there were like four judges who were judging the knives on like different criteria. Like, I think... Who were the judges? Um, it was... Uh, Zach Jonas was one of them. Nick Rossi was another one of them. And I for the life of me, can't remember who the other two were. But obviously high yes. level. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Like, Zach had just had just gotten his MS stamp. So, like, you know, he's not he's not slouching around. Um, you know, Nick is obviously, you know, one of the best 
knife makers around. Like it was, yeah, it was like four guys who knew what they were looking at, taking a look at the comfort of the thing, like the usefulness of it, the balance, like the fit and finish. And you know, fit and finish on a knife that you made in two hours. That's that's a pretty low bar, I think. It can is is pretty <laughs> yeah, safe to say. It's a super low bar. It's a super um, low but bar. But I think the finish on the blade really helped me out there. Um and so on top of that, you know, there were like a certain amount of points awarded to that. And then at the end there were these tests. One was a push rope cut. It had like inch and a half rope. And you had to do a single push with your knife to cut all the way through the rope. So if you got it, you got a point. If not, you got nothing. And then there was another test where you had to pop a water balloon that was on a rope. Um, and if you got it, you got a point. If you didn't, you did nothing. There was like a, uh, a slice of a rolling paper, you know, super, super thin, very wafery yeah. sort of paper. Um, and then I think there might have been one other test. I can't remember what it was. But needless to say, I fucked up all of the tests. I got no extra points. Um, and managed to win somehow. How'd you win? I don't know. Did they vote? Was it another no, voting situation? No, it was. It was literally the four judges. They they each judged each one of our knives separately. Um, and then uh, the the numbers were added together, and then the points, the extra points that you got from successfully completing the tests, were then added to the top of your score. So I have no idea. Did you eke it out, or did you like win? I think handed? I, I think I won by a point, but that's considering that I didn't manage to. All you do is pop the fucking water Dude, balloon, I, and you I, had it. I literally, I literally fucked it up so bad. I missed the balloon. Like, how do you? I just missed. Oh wait, you're supposed to do oh, those yeah, tests. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, so I. So it wasn't like a professional. No, I, I, I think it was, it was nerves. Like Doug Markider or something. No, and the thing is, like, I already thought, like, I would have put major money on having lost. Like lost completely, like you know, without any any chance for redemption. But um, I, I I do think it was the the fit and finish and the the actual finish of the blade and the shape of the handle that did it for me because it was simple but well put together. But I like I straight up would have bet you like I would have easily bet you a hundred bucks that I just lost. But there you know I especially after fucking up all three tests, like you don't come back from that. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, you're the maker, you're not the user. I don't think it was. I don't. I, I'm not. Maybe I don't. I'm not necessarily sure that that made that much. Obviously, it didn't make that much of a difference. Yeah. And and main oxy gave you another check and told you to no more. You're not allowed to well, do it anymore. Well, the, the thing is, they upped the ante for this one. So not only was like there a panel of judges, you know, there was the extra like points that you could get, which um, I, I mean, the other guys did way better than I did on the on the extra points and. Um, so I guess it's not hard to beat zero. Um, but yeah, they gave me they gave me <laughs> <laughs> they they gave me a check for for five grand and dude, yeah, which for two hours oh, worth yeah. of work. That's so that's the best money I've ever made uh, hourly. And when I was hanging out with Nick Rossi later, he was like, "Dude, you got to join the ABS." And I was like, "I was like, yeah, you're probably right." He's like, "At this point, you've like demonstrated and taught at like multiple ABS sanctioned like Hammerins." Plus won all the money and like you you just have to join okay like it's not fair anymore. <laughs> um, and then they told me that you know I was banned from from uh, recompeting, which is fine by me because it's stressful. I'd rather spend the time to work on like a presentation or a demonstration or whatever 
then worry about that and the te- uh, the the battle. Um, so yeah, I, I he basically told me like, yeah, you know, but you can come back if if you want to uh, to be a judge. That would be fun. You've been retired <laughs> as champion, dude. Retirement feels good. Retirement feels good. Emiliano Carrillo, battle champion, un. Uh, what is the expression? Unchallenged, undisputed, <laughs> undisputed, retired battle champion. This, the real trick. I had a good. Dude, the time. real trick is getting out while you're on top. <laughs> Look at you getting out while he's on top. I mean, you can't take it away from him. You got six grand uh-huh. off of main oxy. They don't want to give you another nickel. That's unbelievable. <laughs> well, I tell you what. I, I this has been so much fun for me. I've been friendly with you for a long time. You are outstanding, fascinating individual. Thanks, and I can't thank you enough for joining. Thanks for me. having me. This was an absolute blast. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you said blast five times. No one's gonna. No one's gonna give me trouble about it. Like you tell him to say full blast. <laughs> I don't tell him to say anything. Dude, I... <laughs> now if you want to go, if you want to go follow Emiliano, it's Sun and Stars Forge on yep. Instagram. You should definitely. This is he. He's unbelievable. He's an unbelievable character. But he's an extraordinary blacksmith, bladesmith. He's a f- wonderful person. We had such a good time. We were hanging out on Blade oh, yeah. Show. And definitely go check him out. Whatever he's doing, it's going to be good. I'm sure you're not doing a lot of teaching with COVID right now, but I'm sure you will be Hopefully. soon. Hopefully. We'll see. Hopefully. Well, thank you so much for coming. And guys, do me a favor. I haven't said it in a while. Be nice if you left me a message on. Uh, we need to bump the ratings up. So leave me a, a nice review on iTunes or wherever you watch your shit, uh, Spotify, however you listen to this do a little bit of help me out a little bit we're gonna figure something out um follow me on instagram uh the full blast podcast on instagram we got lots of good guests great guests coming up i'm already finishing up december i'm already working on january and my next guest next week is going to be the turkish delight mert tansu yeah that's going to be fun He's such a fun guy. He's such a great. I love Mert. I, Mert is he Mert is awesome. He actually Mert and the boys at uh, um, Knife Making Down yeah. Under just interviewed Bob Kramer oh, and they cool. did a great job with dude. Him. They did a great job with Bob Kramer. That was really good. So we're gonna have Mert next week. I got a few surprises coming up for Christmas, um, and then I'm already getting ready for 2021. Thank you guys for for being so supportive. It's been a lot of fun, especially I get a lot of nice messages about the cowboy cowboy talk. Last episode with Ben Stern and, uh, and Jonathan Porter was a lot of fun. Thank you guys, and we will for sure see you next Friday. No question about it. Emiliano Carrillo, thank you Thanks so for much. Me. You're the man. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.